listening to the On the NBA Beat Podcast, a show packed with nuanced perspectives on the league's most important stories. Portland has three timeouts left. The Lakers have two. Bryant to shot. LeBron James with no regard for human life. Jordan. Oh, a spectacular move by Michael Jordan. And now, your hosts. Lauren Lee Chen, and the Twins, Aaron and Joshua Fishman. Thanks for tuning in to this special book episode. I'm Aaron Fishman. Joining me today is Mick Minnis, author of The Curse, The Colorful and Chaotic History of the L.A. Clippers, a well-written, thoroughly researched and reported book all about the Clippers. Inside, Mick, an objective analyst, takes readers behind the scenes with the franchise through the many lows, the occasional highs, and everything in between. In 2007, the former youth basketball coach played a rec league game against Dave Simmons, a 6'9 former professional basketball player in Australia. Sitting courtside was Dave's son, a scrawny 11-year-old named Benjamin. Years later, when Ben was in high school, the reigning rookie of the year and Mick narrowly missed facing off. Mick, whose team just played, marveled at the crowd Ben drew for his upcoming game. At that level, typically there were no fans at all. Understandably, a buzz was building around his game. For those who like what they hear from Mick, information on how to purchase the book can be found at clippercurse.com. I'll also include the Amazon link in the show notes. Let's get to the interview. Mick, I'm excited to have you joining me from Australia. I know spring's just starting over there. How's it going down under? Yeah, it's good. It's good. We've had our first few days of sunshine down here. Sounds great. The summer is just ending here. It's still warm in LA. But I really enjoyed this Clippers book. As a longtime Clippers fan, it brought back a lot of memories. We'll go through all of this, but... I wanted to get into the title and, and just the phenomenon of the curse that is just featured throughout the book. In the section where you're discussing Blake Griffin's knee injury prior to his rookie year, you say it left many to wonder, quote, if there was some sort of cosmic force conspiring to prolong the Clippers' misery. How you see it, what is this curse you're alluding to, which so fittingly is also the title of the book? Yeah, um, so I guess the idea of a clipper curse has been around for a while. And, I mean, it's interesting because some of the – there's been some negative sort of reactions from Clippers fans to the title of the book. Um, And, I mean, the title's not meant in any way to be disrespectful. It's just I I felt that it was the best way of sort of capturing what has been the history of the franchise. And and it's just that that sort of – sense of constant misfortune uh you know one one piece of bad luck being followed up a few months later with another piece of bad luck and you know it, it's it's kind of inescapable when you spend time looking at the history of the franchise and you look at the sort of sequence of events it, it, it's really hard to not think that there's something going on because there's just so many um misfortunes and there are you know different varieties you know some are injuries and some are you know bad decisions or um scandals playing out in the public but 
there's just s- such a sort of constant stream of misfortune that it's hard to sort of escape the idea that there is some sort of curse hanging over the franchise. Yeah, the common thread throughout the whole narrative is this curse or supposed curse. I see it as a combination of a number of things. We have to start with horrible ownership and mismanagement, contagiously bad attitudes and efforts, and that's franchise-wide. Occasionally terrible luck, things like really bad, costly injuries at certain times. But also just, I think, self-fulfilling prophecies that are spurred by the team's horrible reputation. And again, that's a reputation that was fairly earned by decades of dreadful performances, dysfunction, unprofessionalism. Expand upon what I just said, if you can. Yeah, look, I think I think you sort of hit hit the nail on the head. There's there's um, I, I personally I think it all stems back to the ownership of Donald Sterling, but I mean. A, a lot of listeners would have had the experience of working in a in a really bad workplace where there was a really bad negative culture, and and so when you turn up to those sort of workplaces every day to you know perform your duties, I guess a common thing that happens is people start to sort of put in a pretty half-assed effort, and um, yeah. they don't really feel like being there, so they don't go the extra mile. Uh, the the way they relate to other employees is not great, and so it sort of has this this negative momentum that builds and builds. And I th- I think with the Clippers, that's exactly what happened. Uh, so I don't think it's like a um, sort of like a, a cosmic force that sort of uh, the universe is colluding against them. I think it's just a case of you know if you acquired a player via trade and that player has come from a really professional first rate organization. Uh, and they're used to sort of operating one way. When they get to the Clippers and they see, you know, poor. I mean, for for a long period of time there in the nineties, they didn't even have a a, a venue to train at. Um, and I mean, that was probably commonplace in the early eighties. NBA teams, you know, training at different venues. But by the nineties, you know, nearly every NBA team had a home base, a training center with your, you know, first-class gym and medical facilities and, every, and, you know, the team offices all there. The Clippers are just going from high school to elementary school and driving all over Los Angeles and practice time would change. And, you know, some of the players I spoke to spoke about, you know, situations where they were waiting to get on a practice court at a, you know, junior high school where there was, they had to wait till the volleyball practice finished and get and then they had to wait for the net to be taken down and, get the hoops down for, for them to be able to play. I mean, so when when the players are sort of in that type of environment, it's easy to see how the effort level would drop off. And I don't think it takes a lot in a sort of super competitive environment like the NBA. Um, you know, if, if you've got players operating at sort of 85 80% effort level, I mean, that's mm-hmm. obviously going to lead to terrible right. results. And then the terrible results leads to, you know, a further drop in morale and, I think it's this kind of um, that sort of downward spiral. Yeah, I think that's important to note. This curse that is the common thread running throughout the narrative, it's not as much a supernatural thing, even though sometimes that is the feeling or the joke about it. It's more of just a, a horrible way of doing things, a bad, unprofessional deplorable way of conducting business and that tone is set from the top down and so it's really not that surprising when you think about it that the owner's employees start adopting those 
bad behaviors and the players from other franchises or other fan bases start to see the Clippers in that light. Yeah, and even if you think about, I mean, injuries, obviously there's a there's a huge element of luck, of bad luck when it comes to injuries. But, I mean, injuries are also uh, connected to, you know, how well players are looking after themselves, um, you know, how much training they're putting in, are they sort of doing the – the things they need to be doing to get their bodies in the best possible shape. And again, if you're in an environment where, you know, you don't have great training facilities, you don't have a huge um, support staff around the team compared to other teams. I mean, it's easy to see how, you know, soft tissue injuries and things like that could occur with greater frequency than maybe um, at other NBA teams. Yeah. There's an element to the bad luck with the injuries But as you said, there were a lot of areas where people can point to poor decisions being made, players being rushed back onto the court. For instance, like Elton Brand, they found an irregularity. Something in his Achilles was damaged. They didn't quite know exactly what it was. But then he returned, I think it was six months later, something like that in the offseason, was playing one-on-one with Chris Kamen, and that's when he ruptured the Achilles completely. There are lots of examples of that. I, and then in recent postseasons, the the injury woes in the playoffs that essentially led to the dismantling of, of that Lob City era team, so many injuries that maybe could have been prevented with better practices by the staff. Um, I did want to ask you, though, of all these really bad injuries that seem to come at at the worst possible times for this Clippers franchise. What do you think were some of the more costly ones? Wow. I mean, there's so many. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's so many, and there's so many that, that was so sort of uh, important and pivotal in the history of the franchise. I mean, if I was going to name a few, I think that obviously Bill Walton, Injury mm-hmm. completely changed the sort of trajectory of the franchise. If um, Bill had been able to to play and be healthy when, when he arrived in San Diego, I, I think it's fair to say that the franchise would still be based in San Diego today. So, I mean, that's a pretty huge sort of uh, what if and turning point for the franchise right. because, um, and and I think that team was was set up to to be a nice team that would have been a Western Conference playoff team and. So that's one. Um, I think Ron Harper's uh, knee injury. Again, I think that uh, the team was set up nicely. They had, you know, a good good coach, um, a, a nice collection of young players at the time, and I think Ron Harper's knee injury was really crucial. I mean, at the time, people probably forget. At the time, Ron Harper was one of the elite players in the league. I think the week he got injured, he had just been named the NBA's player of the week. So, I mean, that was another huge um, injury. I guess the the third major injury would be the sort of collection of injuries that Chris Paul and Blake Griffin seemed to sustain as like an annual sort of event when the yeah. team got to the playoffs. Um, and I think that people sort of talk about, um, you know, that, that era being one of underachievement, but it's impossible to sort of discuss that without looking at the the sort of wretched run they had with injuries 
every year when the playoffs arrived. You really can't separate it. There are so many. There were areas where you point to where they choked. I guess you could say against the Rockets, and and then that ending to the game five against the Oklahoma City Thunder that playoff season in 2014 where they had just come off of a seven game series win over the Warriors. Um, But other than those two areas where you can easily pinpoint some type of choke occurring, so many injuries the last four years or so, even, even farther back than that with that unit. I would even say, Aaron, like this is uh something that sort of gets overlooked. If you look at the if you look at the meltdown in game six against Houston in um twenty fifteen, mm-hmm. I, I think that's very strongly linked to the injuries in that postseason because you remember Chris Paul got injured um at the end of the San Antonio series and he missed game one and game two of the Rockets series. And then he returned in game three and game four but played pretty greatly reduced minutes. And I think that what happened was, even though they had built a 3-1 lead in that series, they had to, um, Doc Rivers had to play his starters massive amount of minutes to cover the loss of Chris Paul. And I think Blake Griffin in particular was a part, I mean, obviously there was an element of luck. I mean, you know, Josh Smith Josh hitting Smith all those threes. Yeah. Yeah. That I mean, like, okay. Yeah, yeah. So there was an element of luck to it. There was an element of the Clippers not managing the game and not closing it out. But there was also an element of just great fatigue on the on the account of the players. Um, yeah. And I think that if they had have won that game six, they would have sort of been limping to the finish line rather than sprinting through the tape. And that was because their players were exhausted from carrying like huge workload that was directly connected to Chris Paul being injured. So if Chris Paul was healthy in that series, um, I dare say they probably they probably win it in, in five or six. That's fair. The Clippers were playing so well. Austin Rivers had that memorable game against the Rockets where he, he was adopting James Harden's stirring up the pot celebration, whatever you call that. Um, I just want to note before we move on, too, and there were so many injuries to choose from. Stanley Roberts, when he was he was decent um, before the injuries, and even though he had issues with staying in shape, he, as you note in the book, twelve months apart, I believe. Correct me if I'm wrong. He ruptured each Achilles. It was one and then the other. Um, Elton Brand also, he was a superstar, and then he ruptured his Achilles and. Most of his career wasn't with the Clippers after that, but he was never the same. And then, of course, we'd be remiss if we didn't mention the Sean Livingston injury. I just get I get so squeamish when I even talk about it. It was difficult reading that part. I was watching that game against Charlotte on TV back in February of 07, I believe. But so many... Yeah, so and, it's, and it's funny that you... Injuries. And it's funny you just reeled off all of those, and then it's like you know this. It's not even scratching the surface. Yeah, yeah, and it's like you know Derek Smith, and Norm Nixon, and Marcus Johnson all injured themselves in the space of twelve months, and that was the team's three best players. Like this is so. I mean, the, the history of the franchise. We didn't even mention Danny Manning, um, yeah. 
blowing his knee out after playing 20-something games as the consensus number one draft pick. I mean, that's the thing. There's just so much misfortune, so many injuries to high-profile important players. Um, it's quite it's quite remarkable. On a brighter note, I'd love to hear about the genesis of the idea of the book and just the basic early steps that you undertook to start creating this comprehensive history of the franchise. So yeah, the book sort of came from out of nowhere. I was, I was uh, happened to be in over in the states um, in two thousand and eight as a, I was coaching a basketball team, and we had travelled over there to play some games against some junior colleges, and we were travelling through California and, and Arizona. And so part of that trip, we had organised to go and take the team to see some NBA games. And and the first game we went to was the Clippers season opener against the Lakers, and this was Baron Davis's debut for the Clippers. Uh, Lakers were coming off the finals loss to the Celtics, so it was a, a really big game, and we were obviously really excited, you know, group of Australians. For some of the people in our party, it was their first ever NBA game. Um, and, like, look, to say the game was underwhelming is, is, is like, a huge um, understatement. It was, it, was a, it was a blowout, and... I mean, it was a blowout where by the, by the end of the first quarter, the game was essentially done. Uh, it, I think they lost by 40 points, the Clippers. And, you know, I mean, one of the things I think that's really interesting is like, you know, you have blowouts in 82-game in season. Teams are going to get blown out when they're middle of a long road trip, dealing with injuries or whatever. But opening night to lose in that fashion in front of your home team fans against your crosstown rivals – it was just for me. I was. I found it just really remarkable, and that was the sort of thing that sparked the interest. So when I returned to Australia, I, I myself and one of the other people that was on the team became really obsessed with the Clippers, and we were reading lots of stuff about the history of the team and sending each other articles, and 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 that's sort of where the idea grew from. That I sort of it was one of those things where I thought someone should write a book about this because. This is just the, the more I read, the more I found it amazing, um, and yeah, and that's and that's how the idea sort of that's where it grew from. That's really interesting. So it was like, wow, this team performed so pathetically when I was there. Then you get interested, you start reading more and more about it, and and all your research furthers your curiosity, and you just find out more and more about the ineptitude of this franchise and. Um, you realize no one has really told this story in such a comprehensive way. So I'm going to be the one to do it. Is is that basically what happened? Yeah, yeah. And and I guess I, I knew, like when I arrived back in Australia, there was there were certain parts of the history of the franchise I was familiar with that I knew were really amazing. Like I knew about the birth of the franchise and I knew about Bill Walton and I knew about the early 90s teams and the misfortune around them. But then when I started looking at the gaps that I didn't know about and found all these other really amazing stories and really interesting characters and um, and then I was just, that's where I, and I really felt like myself being a big NBA fan and a lover of sort of sports books, I, I know that there's a lot more focus on successful teams when it comes to, you know, producing documentaries or writing books. People love to write about the Lakers and the Celtics. Um, and and people are less inclined to to focus on the teams at the other end of the scale, but to me, I mean, the, the stories are no less interesting, and in in many cases, they're more interesting because we haven't heard them before. You know, 
everyone would have heard, you know, the story of, um, you know, Magic Johnson as a rookie, you know, having to replace Kareem at centre and win the the NBA finals. We've heard that a million times, but some of these Clippers stories people have never heard before because because they're less successful, they're kind of hidden from public view. And so to me, that made the project even more exciting. I think also what people say about in times of despair, how you really learn what people are, the true essence of people, how they respond in times of adversity. And that would be an understatement to say that the Clippers have had some times of adversity. You really see the true character, for better or worse, of some of these players, coaches, executives, Donald Sterling. I I did want to ask, though, so you had this idea, but how long after that did you start really putting in real work to help it come to fruition? Um, So I would have arrived back um, late 2008, and I didn't start working on the project until 2011. Um, so it was a good, it was a, there was a good couple of years in between there where it was just, there wasn't an idea to begin with. It was just genuine interest and, and, and like I said, sharing articles and, and, and whatever. And then from there, it sort of grew to this was potentially something that could be done, um, looking into it more. And then two, it was sort of after the 2011 NBA finals was when I really got serious about, researching the book and contacting, you know, former players and coaches and, and gathering articles and doing all the sort of all the sort of grunt work that goes into a project like this. Mm-hmm. It's so detailed. One thing I was wondering was if you had to guess about what proportion of the appearing quotes were obtained from research that you did as opposed to your own reporting. Um, yeah, it's a good question. I would say there's more more of the um, quotes come from sort of archived articles. Um, in terms of proportion, maybe two-thirds to one-third, but I, I wouldn't, yeah, I wouldn't be exactly sure. That's interesting. It's clear that you've done a ton of research. Was a lot of that going through newspaper archives, for example, whether it was online or, or trying, to, trying to find physical copies somehow? Yeah, a lot. There was a lot of... Um, a lot of going through old articles, um, and 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 one of the things that was really really cool was sometimes you'd be looking for articles about a particular topic, and then you'd stumble across some other scandal or some other story that you didn't even know sort of existed and had been sort of wiped from everybody's memory, and you'd discover something. You're like, well, hold on a second, what happened here? Then you'd dig a bit further on that, and you'd find the whole story that went with that. So. That was something that was really rewarding, and and you know the 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 beat writers who work for particularly the Los Angeles Times, like throughout the sort of eighties and nineties, you know, owed a great sort of debt to them for for the work that they had done in reporting the team at the time because there was so much material there to work with. Who would you say was the most surprising person you interviewed relative to what you were expecting to hear from that person? Um. I think probably Stanley Roberts. He was a really amazing guy to talk to, really sort of forthright and had a great amount of insight into his own career. And look, I don't know, fairly or unfairly, I guess going in, you know, in in terms of sort of Clipper history, there's this kind of like the holy trinity of 
like failed Clippers centers, which is, you know, Benoit Benjamin, Stanley Roberts, and Michael Oluwakanti. I guess it probably is unfair, but they're kind of lumped together as similar personalities. Like here are these people blessed with these great physical talents and, and bodies to be able to play the sport at this elite level and earn millions of dollars and they're indulged and um arrogant and lazy and 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 um what I found from talking with Stanley Roberts was that none of that was the case. You know, he struggled greatly with his weight. He also struggled with um which is a little known fact that he struggled with asthma and that sort of played into some of his weight troubles as well because his his asthma was so um, bad initially it was misdiagnosed people didn't know he had this exercise induced asthma so a lot of coaches would look at him struggling to to get up and down the court and he's struggling to breathe and disinterpret it as him being out of shape and once it was finally diagnosed properly you know part of the treatment was that he would uh, take um, steroids to help him be able to breathe but the steroids one of the side effects was that it was really um uh, caused his weight to balloon out as well, um, which is a sort of well-known side effect of of taking that sort of medication. So he was a lot more complex character than um than than sort of the sort of simplistic view that I think a lot of people have of Stanley Roberts and his career. And he was really great to talk to. I uh, really, you know, he uh, really fantastic person. Just going through the book, there were so many quotes that were cringingly hilarious or just just funny for various reasons but um are there any quotes that stand out to you as your favorite or most telling about the clippers franchise yeah well that was one of the things that i found um most challenging was you know each chapter starts with a with a quote that i i tried to select that i thought sort of was funny, but also sort of captured the sort of essence of that particular chapter, that part of the narrative. And I originally thought, okay, if I'm if I'm running at about twenty chapters, I'm going to need twenty quotes. And I thought it might be hard to find a great quote for each one. But what ended up happening was there were so many chapters where the decision they had four really fantastic quotes, and you know I'd be emailing them to friends who are NBA fans and saying like, which one should I go with? Because there were so many great funny quotes. Um, but my look, my favorite is it, it's not even one of the ones that's at the start of a chapter. My favorite is when Bill Walton signed with the Clippers. At the time, they had the rule was that if you signed a free agent, that you had to you still had to um, compensate the team that you signed them from. And the way it worked was that the two teams had to sort of come to an agreement about what was a fair level of compensation. And in Bill Walton's case, it was really tricky because. You know, you could take him as an MVP winner and as one of the elite players in the competition, in which case, you know, you'd need to give a lot of compensation. Or you could look at him as being sort of, you know, injury prone and and doubtful that he may even be able to play 20 games, in which case you would give a modest level of compensation. So Portland and, and San Diego were arguing back and forth about what the compensation package is going to be. And while that was happening, the players from San Diego were really worried. That I spoke to a lot of players from that team, um, and the consensus view was they didn't want to go to Portland. People loved San Diego. They loved the weather. They loved the lifestyle. They loved the team. They had a really good team spirit, and people didn't want to go. So at the time, World Be Free was interviewed by uh, one of the journalists covering the team, and I think the the journalist felt that like you know World was going to give a quote about 
I, you know, I really want to stay in San Diego and I love the Clippers and I want to be in the community. But um, <laughs> when he was asked about how he felt about going to Portland, well, before he said, uh, like, I'm fine. I'll go any place they've got a disco. <laughs> and I just thought that was a great sort of way of capturing that sort of late 70s, yeah. you know, uh, carefree attitude of the NBA and, and World Be Free in particular. That's funny. There were a lot that stood out to me. The section where you were talking about Ron Harper, <laughs> he was just brutally honest. When he was answering questions, there was a period as you detail, that he would just answer every media question with whatever. He even gave whatever shirts to his teammates, custom-made shirts. I have this quote that I wrote down, smell it, we stink, point blank. I don't care how many nice planes you fly on or nice hotels you stay at, there's still something that stinks. And uh, that was also around the time that he compared playing for $4 million for the Clippers to sitting in jail. It's impossible for me to get inside Ron Harper's mind, but I think it's fairly clear that he was trying to force the team to trade him. (laughs) And so it seemed to be his tactic was that when um, he tried and, and that didn't succeed, he just sort of escalated and escalated and escalated this kind of public sort of disparaging of the franchise to, to make it that, like, it was untenable. They had to get rid of him. But, yeah, I mean, there was a period of a few months there where he was just like a quote machine. And, <laughs> I mean, you, you can imagine how difficult it would have been for um, Bob Weiss, who was coaching the team at the time, to try and, you know, build some team spirit um, and get the, the team playing cohesively with Ron Harper, you know, constantly making these public comments in the media. Yeah. As I alluded to at the beginning of our conversation, I've been a longtime Clippers fan ever since I can remember. So reading it brought back a lot of my earliest childhood sports memories. I was born in 89. So just before the mid 90s is when I start to remember going to Clippers games, watching games on TV. A lot of those memories are really fuzzy. I remember the names of players, what they looked like generally the Clippers being really bad, but making the playoffs every once in a while, pretty rarely, like facing the Jazz in 97, for instance. And then more recently, memories are a lot more specific and detailed. But regardless, it was just a trip down memory lane, reading this comprehensive history of the franchise, especially starting from the years where I can actually remember being a fan of the team. To what extent have you heard feedback like that from Clippers fans of various ages? Yeah, look, that's what I guess for me as as the author, I mean, that's been the most rewarding thing. The the feedback from Clippers fans has been um, really fantastic. Um, And, you know, I, I, I wrote the book as as an outsider. Like I'm I'm living in Australia, and um, I don't have that history of following the team, which in some ways was good because it allowed me to sort of be really neutral and impassive and just present things as they were. Um, but you know, I've had so many nice, um, you know, like times where just randomly I'll get uh, someone contact me via Facebook or via email or. Um, via Twitter to just say, I'm, I've just finished reading the book and I love it and I've been a season ticket holder since 1986 and, um, <laughs> you know, it was such a good book and such a good read. And, yeah, that's um, really and I've cool. also been contacted by people who've worked for the franchise 
um, and and given really positive feedback as well. So that's been you know really really rewarding for me to see that the people who've lived through it and who have been there for for you know all of this or most of this um, rocky ride uh, have enjoyed reading the book. While we're on that topic, you just reminded me I, I should give a shout out to my father. He's been suffering as a Clippers season ticket holder since 1986, actually. So that's why I was fortunate enough, and a lot of people would laugh at my use of the word fortunate, to see the Clippers up close and and personal. For all these years, he was born on the East Coast, and so he grew up a Celtics fan, but moved to Los Angeles when he was very young and never liked the Lakers and Clippers season tickets were much more affordable than Lakers season tickets. So for a variety of reasons, he became a a Clippers fan and passed that on to me. But um, yeah, I know there are so many people with, with um, different stories about how they became a fan. And a lot of them through thick and thin are, are still fans of the franchise. So on a different note, this narrative it's kind of it's predictable if you know what I mean. What was the challenge of writing a compelling, suspenseful narrative of a story that in a broad sense repeats itself again and again throughout? Yeah, look, there were challenges involved in that. One of the challenges was that and I guess I realized this as I started it was I mean, it, when the you know, I spoke before about people writing books about the Lakers and the Celtics, I mean, it's a lot easier to interview people about their careers when you're talking about their glory days and their great moments in their careers. And, you know, you find that players have a lot um, more vivid memories of these positive aspects of their careers and a lot more willing to to open up and talk about them. Um, and it, it could be a lot more challenging trying to interview and discuss with people sort of the, the dark moments of their careers and the times where things didn't work out. So that was one thing I found challenging and in some interviews, it was more difficult than I anticipated to get the subject to open up. But I found that once people sort of um, realized and got a sense that the that I you know wasn't trying to sort of um, throw them under the bus or or poke fun at the, at these at these moments of their careers, that I was just trying to get a, an accurate picture of what happened, and and that, that there was a level of understanding there that that they were placed in this bad position or this bad situation that it wasn't of their own making you know i found that the the vast majority of people i interviewed were really sort of willing to sort of you know share those um, memories and experiences and for some of the players um involved it was really you know they, they some of these memories were really quite painful um this was sort of the the maybe the point in their career that sort of almost put an end to their professional career of their dream of, you know, playing professional basketball, the Clippers sort of brought down the curtain on it. So that was something that was hard. And I guess the, 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 the in terms of the writing, the, the, the putting together the, the story, one of the things that made, one of the things that made it hard was that there was this sort of perpetual failure, but, but I guess the thing that made it, that work was that every time around it would be something different that that caused the wheels to fall off and so there was you could always have some fun with you know building suspense around what was going to happen and then all of a sudden it would be something different that that was you know completely different than 
the previous five <laughs> um, calamities, yeah. the sixth one would be something different. And, th- and that sort of, I think, kept it fresh and exciting. I agree. As a reader, you know something bad is about to happen, but you don't know exactly what. So, <laughs> that definitely keeps it fresh. Just a quick pitch for the book from my perspective. First of all, it's different for everyone. This is more of a preference thing. But personally, I recommend reading the footnotes because they just go into such specific detail and add context that I think it is so valuable and just uh, enhances the experience that much more. But also, whether you're just an average NBA fan or even a Clippers fan, I think there would be a lot in here that you probably never knew or forgot. One example, and this isn't even that obscure, but it was now 25 years ago. I think a lot of people forget or never knew that in consecutive postseasons in 92 and 93, the Clippers took a different Western Conference powerhouse to a decisive fifth game in the opening round against the Jazz and the Houston Rockets, who then in a couple years, actually the next year, when Michael Jordan was um, temporarily out of basketball, ended up winning a couple consecutive championships. But yeah, I think there's so much that people will learn from reading this book. Thanks, Aaron. Yeah, and I guess those um, those early 90s teams, that they were, you know, uh, uh, both, both those game fives, they lost those decisive game fives. But to Utah and Houston, the Clippers were, you know, slight ball bounces a different way and they win those games um, and they progress to the second round. And again, if they had to progress the second round, maybe the franchise's future looks different. Maybe Larry Brown stays. Maybe they spend some more money on the players. And yeah, but they were very, very close to winning both of those series. Yeah, it's amazing how even amid all this dysfunction and mismanagement, the Clippers time and time again were so close to something really good happening in different decades. Just It just seemed to happen a lot. Stay tuned. We'll be right back with more show. Hey, this is Eric Pincus, and I'm on the NBA Beat. So we have to talk about Donald Sterling, who's featured prominently in the book. First, can you just remind me of the time a while ago that he almost got kicked out as owner? Yeah, so this was right back when he first purchased the team, um, and he, he initially annoyed the NBA head office because he publicly declared that the team was trying to tank, which is a much more obscure tactic in the early 80s than what it is today. The idea was that Ralph Sampson was a junior at Virginia, and he was you know very sought-after, high-profile college player, uh, Clippers were faced with very minimal prospect of making the playoffs anyway. So at this um, luncheon, Don Sterling, um, you know, publicly proclaimed that the team was aiming to finish last, and when they finished last, they were going to draft Sampson. Uh, unbeknown, unbeknownst to um, Donald, there was um, someone from the media there, and his comments were recorded and reported. Um, and the NBA head office didn't take too kindly to this, you know. So that was the first thing that annoyed the NBA and he was fined and um, that was midway through the season. And then at the end of the season, he took it upon himself to announce that he was moving the team from San Diego to Los Angeles uh, with no discussions, consultation, nothing with the league head office. 
And so as a result of that, the league head office yeah, instigated sort of an investigation into whether he was fit to continue as an owner. And initially, there was a meet. There was a meeting of a group of a, a sort of subgroup of like six owners that voted unanimously to refer it to a full meeting, and they voted unanimously that yeah, that Donald Sterling's ownership should be terminated. So it was just a matter of time that this meeting was going to happen, and and all the sort of um, news coming out of the, the NBA head owners was that that the vote was was going to go against Donald. There were, there were some owners who went public and, and made statements in the media saying that, you know, he was as good as gone was one of the quotes. And then Donald Sterling sort of showed his his nous as a businessman and he did this sort of strategic retreat. So rather than take it head on and, and try to battle the head office, the NBA head office and, and fight to keep the Clippers, he instead declared his intention to sell the team and he sort of said, oh, yeah, I, I wasn't ready to be a, a owner of an NBA team, and so I'm gonna. I'm looking for a buyer, and I'm gonna get out of the business. And the NBA seemed to buy this story, and they backed off on the on the move to force him out. Now, what appears to be the case is that it appears that Donald Sterling was just trying to buy himself some time, because a few months later, you know, the heat had sort of died down. The focus on the Clippers, uh, the focus had shifted elsewhere. And Donald went back to the NBA and sort of said, look, I'm, I'm actually going to keep the team and I've changed my ways and I'm going to do things better. And and that seemed to be enough to get the NBA to back off and let him keep the team. And and that was kind of looked like the one opportunity to get rid of him. And I dare say that David Stern would have spent many a sleepless night looking back on this moment in the early 80s and wishing that the league had have acted differently. Yeah, I would think so. How did he get away with this league-damaging ownership he presided over for so long? Just no accountability, really? The NBA was making money and didn't really see that he was damaging their product or, or didn't feel like they could do much about it? Well, I guess, I mean, I guess in, in, in defense of the NBA, uh, you know, you, you could see, I mean, one thing about Don Sterling is he he was and, and is very litigious and he's prepared to, you know, he's prepared to go to court and fight for what he thinks, what he's entitled to. So you, you knew if you if you were trying to take on Don Sterling, you knew that you had to have all of your legal uh, I's dotted and legal T's crossed because if you didn't, he wasn't going to he wasn't going to concede. Um, and if there was a chance that he could beat you in court, then he would he would take that opportunity. So whilst there was a lot of allegations made against Don Sterling over the years for you know housing discrimination and and um, extramarital affairs and and um, s- sexual misconduct and all that type of stuff, there was. He was able to always resolve those matters without ever being found guilty in a court of law. So, I mean, you know, if he, if he, if you give a payout to someone of a few hundred thousand dollars, whilst the general public can look at that as an admission of guilt, saying, well, why would you pay this person a few hundred thousand dollars to go away if you weren't guilty? Legally, that's not a, a not an admission of guilt. So, mm-hmm. you know, when he was able to settle these things out of court. Um, or, or quietly sort of make them go away by whatever means he used, that prevented the NBA from having anything that they could sort of use against him to force him out. And I think also, I, I don't think there was an appetite there from NBA owners 
to take action against him because, you know, I imagine that some of the owners would have seen it as a bit of a slippery slope. You know, if 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 we're going to start judging the morality of people's fitness to be an NBA owner, I mean, some of the other NBA owners may not have liked where that that discussion yeah. would have headed. So I don't think anybody was super keen to sort of take him on and force him out, especially whilst he was kind of in the background, which 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 is what he was for most of the time. You know, until Blake Griffin arrived. No one really cared about the Clippers besides Clipper fans. So he, Donald Sterling was kind of an embarrassing sideshow in the background rather than being front and centre. So the damage he did to the NBA brand was somewhat limited. You titled the epilogue, Some Things Change and Some Stay the Same. In the summer of 2014, Steve Ballmer officially became the team's new owner, buying the franchise for $2 billion in the wake of that lifetime ban of Donald Sterling from the NBA. How much has the ownership change changed things for the Clippers and how much has stayed the same? Yeah, that's the interesting thing because the curse seems to continue. Um, and and <laughs> you know, way, if we go yeah. back to our earlier discussion, you know, it, things have changed a lot. You know, the Clippers are investing, you know, a lot of money. Uh, they're very much a top-notch organization now. And under Steve Barmer, it seems no expense is spared. But yet that that misfortune seems to continue. I guess you can put recent history more down to sort of bad luck and misfortune than anything to do with, um, you know, the mismanagement of the team. And it's a very small sort of sample size. We were only looking at a few seasons. And, and you know, one of those seasons was, was directly still hampered by, you know, the, the playoff loss to the Oklahoma City Thunder, I mean, that's definitely impacted by the scandal with Donald Sterling and V. Stiviano. So so 2014, we, that, that was still, even though um, Sterling was being forced out, that was still impacted by um, Sterling's ownership. So you're really looking at 2015, 2016, 2017, 2018. So it's only been four seasons since Barmer took over. But yeah, it, it it still is inescapable. They've had a lot of bad luck in those in those four years, and um, I'm sure Clipper fans are, are keenly awaiting for their luck to finally change. Last off season, Blake Griffin, the Clippers were promising him that he could be a Clipper for life if he resigned, and and they were celebrating the max five year contract that he signed. And then they traded him away the next January. How would you assess the Clippersness of that move? It, it fits broadly into the narrative, doesn't it? Um, and you know, he was the, the 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 most. I mean, I think Chris Paul is probably a more important player for the franchise, but Blake Griffin was the was the person that started the whole Lob City era. Um, and you know, he he had the injury in his rookie season, but then he came back and he lived up to all of the hype and um and you know played so remarkably well and was that such a foundation for that playoff run. But I mean, having said that, I think that they probably made the right decision to trade him away. I, I don't think that I don't think building a team around Blake Griffin, uh, at least building a team around 2018 Blake Griffin was ever going to be a championship contender. And I think that once Chris Paul left, there was the need to to sort of seriously uh, reevaluate where they were headed. But then 
you know, you could come back at me with the question, well, then why did they sign him to a five-year deal? I mean, I think the other thing that you're missing in terms of the, the hilarity of the situation was, do you remember the T-shirts that they had made up to try and convince oh, like yeah. to resign? I mean, that that to me, that, 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 I, I was watching that thinking if, if I was to write like an updated version of the book, this would definitely be included, you know, with the, <laughs> with Gandhi and, and, and Martin Luther King and, and all these prominent. He, he was on like a modern day Mount Rushmore of legendary figures. Yeah, yeah. I'm not sure. I'm not qu- I think he's still fallen a bit short of Gandhi in terms of <laughs> lifetime achievements. But, <laughs> hey, the career is still going. So, you know, may, you maybe know. something will happen in the next few years. But, yeah, I, I thought that was – and I mean, you know, who know? I don't. I don't imagine Blake would have taken that seriously himself. He probably had a good laugh about it as well. I, I think um, I'm just confused about the whole thing. So first of all, I think it's unfair the way I posed the question because, as you noted, the Balmer era is pretty new in the scheme of things, and so I'm going off of the Clippers' reputation all those decades under Sterling that they did stuff like that. And there was a lack of trust that was warranted from the players. They didn't really honor what they said they would do. Coaches have had litigation with them, not honoring their contracts when they were released prematurely. But yeah, I just didn't understand why they committed so much money to him. At the time, I thought this might be good from a business perspective, getting butts in the seats, keeping high-flying Blake Griffin in town, even after Paul is gone, as you get ready to move into a new arena in the coming years. I thought that was smart, whereas it was a little bit of a risk from a basketball standpoint, given Griffin's history of injury, the fact that he was aging, locking him up for a five-year max contract. So I saw the pros and cons of it. But then once they went all in on that, I didn't understand why come January they got rid of him. Now, I think they got a really good return for him. And I think that it makes them better from a basketball perspective moving forward. I just I don't really understand exactly why it unfolded like that. I guess credit to them if they determined that they made the wrong decision and that changing course would have been the best move. I guess that's what they did. Yeah, and I think that's that's maybe um, reflective of a new error in the Clippers that you know good organizations will do that. Will be able to say, okay, we messed this up. How do we how do we minimize the the effect of it, mm-hmm. or how do we still get a good return? And I think the initial thing of signing him was more a business decision, was more about season ticket holders and, you know, more about sort of minimising the damage of Chris Paul leaving. And then I, I I would imagine that, that you know, Lawrence Frank and Doc Rivers would have looked at it and just said, looked at the team without Chris Paul. And, and maybe the offer came from Detroit where they just felt it was too good to, to turn back. Maybe they had... I don't know. I, to be honest, I haven't followed it as closely as as when I was covering the team. But I don't know whether Detroit came forward with the offer or whether the Clippers came forward with the offer. But let's say Detroit put it out there. I mean, they maybe they weren't even shopping Blake. Maybe maybe it came from Detroit. Yeah, that's definitely a possibility where it was just too good to turn down. And we're seeing that they got a good return. It's all. It always comes down to injuries too. This season, again, 
there is reason for optimism. They have a deep squad, although so do many of the other teams in the Western Conference. But just to end, I'm giving you an opportunity here to just, if you can pick one, the best moment to date in Clippers history, and then also the most crushing or devastating moment so far. I look. I don't think this is. I don't think this is recency bias. I, I think that clearly the best moment in Clippers history was the Game Seven playoff victory over San Antonio. Um, and look, the Lob City era had some really great playoff wins, and I think they had a disproportionate amount of memorable playoff victories for such a short sort of, you know, like a four-year type run with that team. Um, But that Game 7 win over San Antonio, to me, was the highlight. I mean, San Antonio was such a a fantastic franchise. Um, And, you know, for Chris Paul to get injured in that game and then to come back and to make that, the the closing, the last sort of 90 seconds of that game was just such a, you know, fantastic example of playoff basketball and, and the little runner that he won the game with, it was just, to me, that was 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 the high point of the franchise. Uh, and then I guess like the great sort of irony is that the, the low point came, you know, two weeks later um, where they were up, you know, they were up 3-1 against the Rockets, you know, and then heading into game six, they've got a 3-2 lead. It's a closeout game. Rockets are on the ropes and, and James Harden's been subbed off. So, you know, in effect, in effect you know, they've waved the white flag um, and then, you know, to just have, you know, that eight minutes of basketball that just every, like literally every single thing that the Rockets needed to happen happened and everything that could have gone wrong for the Clippers went wrong. It, and to me, that was the that was the lowest point um, of so many lows. It was so crushingly depressing um, to see that, you know, that here they were, they should have been headed to the Western Conference Finals. And and it just fell. It just slipped through their fingers. Yeah, the irony of that is that I was in attendance for both the moment you picked as the best one and the most crushing one. Yeah, well, you you would know better than me the feeling of of the of the feeling of elation of being there for Game Seven against San Antonio and being there for Game Six against Houston. Yeah, amazing and and devastating. And even though there was a game seven that was going to be played in Houston, it was just so deflating. I am an optimist as many Clippers fans are out of necessity. (laughs) And so I was saying, at least outwardly, that there's still a game seven. The Clippers have played really well this entire series. And it's not going to be that difficult. Maybe they have slightly below a 50% chance of winning in Houston, but They'll be okay, but I think in the back of my mind when they lost that game in the way that they lost it, I just knew that it was over for them that postseason. Yeah, and I think that also plays to what we said before about how fatigued the team was. I think they were just – I think mentally it was it was sort of so crushing that defeat and I think physically they had just – that their, their sort of key personnel had just been through so much in, in that previous three weeks leading up to that game seven – that there wasn't a lot of yeah. gas left in the tank. As we wind down, I just want to say I really appreciate you joining me. Your book is spectacular. I enjoyed reading it very much. And it's also a good time to talk about it and the Clippers, given that the Lob City construction, those those three guys are now all gone from the team. 
with DeAndre Jordan moving on to Dallas this offseason. So it's the start of a new Clippers era. And like I said, hope springs eternal, whether or not that's founded in Clippers history or not. People are optimistic. And I think that Clippers fans will continue to be, they just have to be. It's like part of how you evolve as a Clippers fan because it's like the only other option is to sort of give up and to and to and to quit watching the NBA, isn't it? Uh huh. Yeah. It's. I mean, it's a human thing too. Whether you're a sports fan or or just in general, you cling to whatever hope there is and, and um, try to look towards silver linings. But I'll end it there. Thanks again for joining. Me. Thanks a lot for having me on. My pleasure.